This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of November 9th, 2020. And on Monday's episode, we uh, got to meet executive producer Mike Richards uh, as he gave a very heartfelt and meaningful uh, dedication to Alex Trebek. Yeah, it was touching. Um, And pulled back the curtain a little bit for the viewers who um, may think that the show is broadcast live or taped that morning or you know i've had people guess different things sure um yeah uh so they do have seven weeks of banked episodes um that alex had recorded and i believe he was recording up until about two weeks before he passed Mm. yeah so we've we're in our last few weeks of uh jeopardy shows hosted by alex trebek yep and boy, have uh, has there been a lot of chatter about who's going to replace him. Mm-hmm. There sure has. I I have my opinions, but you know, I I trust that they'll make a good decision. Um, in the in the church, um, we tend to emphasize the importance of having an interim pastor, especially after a long-serving and beloved pastor. Mm-hmm. Um that it's important to have somebody whose job is to kind of bridge into whatever comes next. Yeah. I think that would be my thought for Jeopardy as well. I'm not in charge, but I think if I were, I would think a kind of a short-term guest host would be the right next move before thinking about who might be uh, the right person right. to take it over for a longer term. Yeah, I... I... You know, based entirely on nothing. But when people ask, you know, what do you think will happen? I just kind of think that they will have an interim. But I, if I had to guess, I would guess Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Since he runs the rehearsal games, he's, you know, very comfortable and familiar with the process of, of hosting. You know, not necessarily on tape but he mm-hmm. you know he does a great job in the rehearsal rounds before uh tapings and uh he seems to kind of be the guy so mm-hmm. and he's a familiar jeopardy face which will be comforting um yeah i'd i'd had that same specific thought that that jimmy as the interim until they are um ready to identify who might be the next long-term host right would be a good move for them yeah Then it jumps into the game. So on Monday, November 9th, we had Ben Lewis, a data scientist from Costa Mesa, California. Manisha Crisell, a urologist originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Andrew Chaikin, a musician and teacher from San Francisco, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $21,601. And we got the Jeopardy! Round category podcasts. Yay! The Bookcase, What the Blank, M&M's, each correct response begins with M, has an 
ends somewhere in the middle and ends with an M. That was a mm-hmm. weird sentence to say. Uh, a day at the races and a night at the opera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was the writer's chance. This was their chance to make it clear the amount of influence we have on the show. And yet they did not they did not shout us out on the podcast mm-hmm. category. Shockingly. 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 It is not considered trivia, acceptable trivia, that our podcast exists. Mm-hmm. We have dozens We're gonna break of into the Dozens. We're going to break into the canon sometime, Kyle. We'll get there. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. We'll get there. I enjoyed the night at the opera category. Of course you did. I did. There was a triple stumper down at the bottom of it. Thousand dollar clue. The King's Aria to a Tree is a highlight of Handel's Circe about the Persian king better known as this. That was Xerxes. I have seen Mm -hmm. that opera. It is boring as all get out. And you might find opera boring just across the board. That might be something that you feel. Uh, Imagine a boring opera, though, Mm. if that's what you think. (laughs) It is unbelievably boring. My mind just transposed Circe into Xerxes um, because they're so close. Right. Kind of if you understand how how things get uh, transliterated from one language to another that I was trying to think of some other name for Xerxes. Mm -hmm. Um, So, whoops. My seven-year-old really loved seeing the $800 level of the bookcase. The bookcase turned out to be all about detective novels, Mm -hmm. basically. And the clue there was, this colorful boy detective solved many crimes like the case of the stolen diamonds. That's Encyclopedia Brown. Oh, yeah. We're in a big Encyclopedia Brown phase right now. Oh, I'm so excited for my kids to get there. I'm so excited for my kids to learn to read. Oh, my gosh. Mm, Kids learning to read is great. Mm -hmm. If the second one could just learn to read, then we would have smooth sailing. Yeah. I have a vision of the day when we can announce, oh, it's time for everyone to take out their book and read to themselves for 20 minutes. Oh, I know, right? That's I, I fantasize about, like, you know... Evenings after dinner, it's like, okay, we're all just going to sit down and read now until bedtime. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Oh, oh it's going yeah, to be dream. so good. Yeah. We'll get there one day. We find Daily Double number one in that night at the opera category that we were talking about a moment ago. It's the 20th pick. Andrew finds it at the $600 level and wagers 3000 of his 7800 He's in a solid lead at this point. Ben has 4,400. Manisha has 1,200. And Andrew gets the clue. The name of this famed opera house in Milan, built by Maria Teresa in the 1770s, translates to The Staircase. And that is La Scala. Andrew gets that one right. We had a deep dive on... Well, the deep dive was on La Scala, right? Yeah. At some point, it'll get old saying, See, listeners? Listen to Just our listen dives, to the entire right? back catalog, <laughs> and you'll right. be all set. Yes. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Andrew is in the lead with 11,800. Manisha has 1,600. Ben has 5,600. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, historic names, acronyms, among the 10 largest islands, movie bios, symbols, and Ken Jennings, marine biologist. I mean, I guess this brings it up. All the talk about Ken being the, you know, being one of the top, you know, odds on favorites for 
hosting Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I kind of go back and forth on whether I think I'd like that. I mean, I I like Ken. He I I find oh him, yeah, I find him very entertaining and charming and and enjoyable to watch. So if he were the host, I I would like it very much. But uh, the notion of a former contestant being the host is I don't know strange yeah. to me. I yeah I I legitimately do not know how I feel about it. Yeah, and it comes with some concerns around the eligibility of many people who mm -hmm. um, play trivia regularly and would like to be on Jeopardy someday. Right. Um, I don't know that that necessarily that's the thing that's going to make up the minds of, uh, of Jeopardy's producers. Um, but it's something that, uh, that Jeopardy folks worry about. Right. I've heard people say, oh, they won't even be able to find any contestants because everyone has some connection to Ken. I think that is, I think that's, that's a bit far. That's a bit far. 80,000 people take the test every year, you know, and I think there's a, there's a much smaller circle of, trivia diehards who socialize with each other a lot there will certainly be plenty of contestants available but i hear i hear the concern that uh because ken has been you know a, a contestant um and is in is in those kinds of trivia communities that it that it impacts the eligibility of many people who have this kind of lifelong dream of being on jeopardy and you know, I, yeah, I, I, I am, I'm sure whatever decision they make will will be great. Um, yeah, will and will work out. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not somebody who's uh, who's jumping for Ken Jennings to um, to take over Alex's podium. Yeah, especially since he just got that gig on the Chase. You know. Yeah. So Daily Double number two shows up in the among the ten largest islands category. At the eight hundred dollar level, Ben finds it, and he wagers six thousand uh mm. he was at ten thousand even andrew is in the lead at thirteen thousand eight hundred and manisha was back at sixty four hundred and he gets the clue it's the only one of the ten that's part of africa and he gets it right that's madagascar yeah i mean the category narrows it down for you anyway it's like you yeah. have a one in ten shot if you happen to know large islands anyway mm-hmm yeah. Um, and I thought that one was pretty accessible. Um, mm -hmm. Good to see him make a confident wager there. Yeah. Smart move, especially with 19 clues still left on the board. If you if you uh, make a big wager there and miss, you still have time to make it back up. Right. Daily Double number three comes up in the historic names category as the 17th pick. It's at the $1,600 level and... Ben finds this one as well. At this point, he's at 17,200 and he wagers 5,000. Um, Andrew has made a push up to 19,400. Monish is at 6,400. And he gets the clue. In 1781, this German philosopher published his critique of pure reason because he could. And he gets that one correct. That is Kant, Immanuel Kant. And I think because he could here is like pun on on his name Kant sounds like can't initially I was trying to figure out whether that was a reference to something in Immanuel Kant's philosophy but nope it was a pun mm -hmm. so uh Ben takes the lead again really impressive performance from Andrew you know he got that he got that first round daily double 
Ben got the second and third daily doubles and used both of them to try and leapfrog over Andrew, who was getting ahead of him just on buzzer speed and knowledge. Right. Yeah. So it was a, a very high scoring game and well, well played. And by the end of the double jeopardy round, Ben is in the lead at 24,200. Andrew is at 22,200. And Manish is at 10,000. 10,000 is a good score. Yeah, also. it's not often we see five figures of all, for all three players, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that she can't even reach the other two is like very high yeah. score game. Uh, so they get the Final Jeopardy category word origins and the clue, this word for a type of building or institution comes from Greek for a place sacred to a mythical group of nine. And Manisha guesses what is pan- what is a pantheon, uh, but she has wagered zero, smartly, I would say. Mm-hmm. But that is incorrect, but she remains at 10,000. Andrew wagered 21.99 to get above Ben by a little bit, and he got it correct with what is museum, referring to the muses. And so he's in the lead for a moment, but then Ben made a cover bet. Of 20,201. And he also mm-hmm. got it correct with what is a museum. So his one, his first day winnings are $44,401. Yeah. Um, Andrew's bet also, if he were to miss, he would drop to $20,001. So he is taking into account that if Manisha does a full double up, mm-hmm. he still wants to be above her if he misses. Um, smart wagering. So that brings us to Tuesday where we have the contestants Greg Morero, a school administrator from Huntington Beach, California. Melissa Givens, a voice professor and singer originally from Buffalo, New York. And Ben Lewis, a data scientist from Costa Mesa, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $44,401. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, getting the key to the city, hymns, sports halls of fame, magic, Books by subtitle and beverage rhyme time. Yeah, and they <laughs> started out at the thousand dollar level of beverage rhyme time, which turned out to be a poor choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clue is rather than espresso, a South American beverage made with leaves is frothed with milk. And Greg rings in and starts to say matcha something, but he apologizes, which is, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I realize you're on stage and you're nervous, but uh, I always find it funny when, like, you apologize yeah. to Alex for, like, not not getting it right. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, mm-hmm. But that is a mate latte. Right. Uh, I got that one. I did not, not at all. Yeah. Matcha is uh, not related to mate at all. Although the question got me wondering, so I looked it up. Um, but now we know. Yeah, now we know. But Melissa got Chia Sangria right after that. That was a fun one. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in having any Chia Sangria. That does not sound delicious. No, no, it does not. No. Yeah. But for my my thought with that is like, you know, you know for things like Sports Hall of Fame, you kind of know what you're getting into. Or even like books by subtitle, you kind of know what you're getting into. But Beverage Rhyme Time, like the wordplay categories, to me, I would, I would want to start at the top to kind of get the conceit for that category. Yes. On an easier question. And then be able mm-hmm. to work down to it. Yeah, but agreed. That was, that was Ben's choice. Yep. Fun to see the hymns category. Uh, mm-hmm. And the players did well with it. Greg and Melissa 
were going for those. Um, I imagine Melissa wanted all of them as a voice professor and singer. It seems that she has, has firsthand knowledge of all of those. Yep. That was my read as well. These were all kind of classic hymns, although Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up singing Rock of Ages, so it took me a little bit to place the clip that they played, which I think was just the organ playing the tune. Um, Melissa got right in there and got it, though. And always good to get a shout out to uh, St. Francis of Assisi, which we saw at the $600 level. A hymn that begins all creatures of our God and King was based on a work by this patron saint of animals and ecology. Um, St. Francis was a pretty cool guy. Maybe we'll talk about him someday. Maybe we will. Not this week, though. Yeah. Daily Double number one arrives in the getting the key to the city category. Uh, Pick number seven. It's at the $1,000 level and Ben finds it. He has a mere 200 but he wagers 1,000. Melissa's in the lead at 1,200, and Greg is at negative 200. He gets the clue. In 1960, this teacher returned to Dayton, Tennessee for the first time since his conviction there to receive the city's key. He thinks about it for a moment, but then he gets it with Scopes, who is Scopes. Mm -hmm. That's right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Ben is up to 3,000, Melissa's at 2,400, and Greg is at 3,200. So it's a close game. And they get the double jeopardy categories, a medical degree, D in quotation marks, oxymorons, around the world, odd pairs, and Alex gives the example of Kyrie and Washington Irving, a saint in history, and a whole clue presented by Mariah Carey about Mariah Carey. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced Mariah Carey is a regular Jeopardy watcher. Yeah. I'm a big fan, but like she just, I, I don't know, something about her, uh, something about her, her presentation made me think, I'm not sure she knows this show well. It seemed like she was struggling to lean into like this holiday song, you know, like the, the, right. um, the part of the clue where you kind of uh, lean on, this is the part that we're looking for. Right. The sort of meter that it, that it tends to follow. Yeah. If you if you happen to be a pastor, this is a great set of boards for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although I felt that those I felt that this saint in history category was pretty gettable even for those who are not clergy. Yeah, agreed. And they try to, you know, give entry points for uh for non-experts on just about everything, and I felt that they had those here as well. Mhm. Daily Double number two comes up in the Around the World category at the $800 level. Uh, ben finds this one on the 12th pick and wagers 8200 which is a true Daily Double. At this point, Greg has 8000 and Melissa has negative 400 And Ben gets the clue. The currency sometimes called the NIS, or New Israeli This, has been used since the mid-1980s. And Ben was kind of looking down. I wasn't really sure if he was going to get it, um, mm-hmm. but then he did. He said, what is a shekel? Yeah, you, you encounter references to shekels in the Bible, and then uh, shekel became the Israeli currency. New Israeli shekels, since the mid-1980s, maybe they did like a, like a, like a change or a whatever. I don't know. I don't know why, it is, why mid-1980s for the new Israeli shekel. When I went to Turkey, I think it was, they were on like the new lira, new lira, where they'd done like an adjustment and were on like a, like the previous, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Revaluation of the Turkish lira. 
yeah, there was a transition period between January 2005 to December 2008 uh, for the removal of six zeros from the currency. (laughs) (laughs) That seems important. I didn't know why at the time, but uh, yeah. So I don't know what led to the new Israeli shekel, but... um, You know, probably some kind of hyperinflation. Yep. Daily Double number three comes up in that saint in history category at the bottom of it. It's the $2,000 clue. Pick number 21, Greg finds it. He is at 7,600 behind Ben's 17,600. So he's 10,000 behind. And Melissa is at 2,000. Very spread out. And he wagers 4,000. Not a bad bet. Gets you closer to reach. I might have gone for all of it, but uh, he gets the clue. In 1170, this Archbishop of Canterbury took the fatal step of excommunicating the Archbishop of York, infuriating the king. And uh, he works around to it and remembers that it is uh, Thomas a Becket. Mm-hmm. So he jumps up. I can never keep my Thomases straight. I did guess the right one. I also guessed Thomas a Becket. But yes, like Thomas More and Thomas, what, Cromwell or whatever. Yeah, uh, lots of Thomases. Yeah, there's a lot of Thomases. Thomas Akempis is another important church mm-hmm. one. Very different figure from the others, but there's just too many Thomases, too many church Thomases. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Ben is in a pretty commanding lead with nineteen thousand two hundred, but not a lot. Game. Greg has thirteen thousand two hundred, and Melissa has two thousand. And we get the final Jeopardy category: history in the movies. And the clue. Vehicles in 2001 A Space Odyssey featured this airline's logo, but the company went bankrupt in 1991. Melissa wagered just 100 and guessed what is Eastern Airlines. That's incorrect. Greg wagered 8,000 and responded, what is Pan Am? And that is correct. Uh, Ben wagered 7,201. Uh, cover bet, uh, but he guessed what is Martin. So with $21,200, Greg is our winner going into Wednesday. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Doug Grimshaw, a high school economics teacher from Burbank, California, Daniela Regencia, an attorney originally from Westfield, New Jersey, and Greg Marrero, a school administrator from Huntington Beach, California, who just won $21,200. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, set the table, taxes, three-letter crossword clues, geology, she shoots, and he scores. (laughs) Which were respectively about female photographers and um, male composers who Mm -hmm. write Film, Film score composers. Yeah. Yeah. Film score composers. Yes. They struggled a bit with the set the table category, which was all about kind of elegant table settings. At the $400 level, we had a triple stumper. These can be quite elegant, as in the 19th century Venetian example here. Tacos and fried chicken must have been popular in 19th century Venice. And there was a picture of a very like fancy little bowl. Nobody knew what that was. It was a finger bowl. I knew yeah, that I because... Oh, okay. I uh, I was a big fan of the American Girl dolls mm-hmm. when I was a kid and had a lot of the books about the characters themselves, but then also there would be books like 
cookbooks and books of like all, all like all kinds of stuff related to kind of the like the the whole set of characters and i remember learning a lot of food related trivia from my american girl doll cookbook like historical food trivia so i think finger bowls was related to their their girl of the victorian era mm. interesting lots of lots of american girl nerds out there uh in the in the, in the women in of Jeopardy. jeopardy community yes yeah. yes there's a there's a there's a big overlap in that fed diagram <laughs> um <laughs> Let's see. Anything else we want to talk about here? Uh, I don't uh, think blathering so. on about American Girl dolls. Yeah, not that I have. Daily Double Number One comes up in the geology category at the six hundred dollar level. It's the twenty second pick, and Doug finds it, and he wagers fifteen hundred of his thirty eight hundred. Um, Greg has forty two hundred at this point, and Daniela has two thousand, and he gets the clue. J. Harlan Bretz explored many of these with his dog. In his book, These of Missouri, he called them valleys with roofs. Um, and Doug correctly responds, caves. What are caves? Valleys with roofs. What, a, mm-hmm. what an interesting description. It is. Yeah. I enjoyed the film score category. I love film scores. And all yeah. That. Got a shout out. Shout out to uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I feel like those are important names for trivia people to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, but also shockingly brilliant musicians. Not that mm-hmm. you know, not that I'm like throwing shade on Nine Inch Nails or anything, but if you just think like, oh, they're just some like you know hard rockers or whatever. They they are they are extremely extremely knowledgeable musicians. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round. Doug is in the lead with 6,100, Greg has 5,000, Daniela has 2,200, and we get the Jeopardy round categories, 21st Century Broadway, Unusual Adjectives, Authors' Homes, Geographic Gateways, Transportation, and John Brown. And that category is going to contain clues from the new Showtime limited series, The Good Lord Bird, which I had not heard of to be perfectly honest, until oh. this episode aired. Yeah. But I'm intrigued. They did their job. Yeah. They, yep. The, it, the money paid off, right? Yep. <laughs> My foray into learning more about alcohols and cocktails paid off for me. Oh, nice. would have. In the unusual adjectives category, at the, the $2,000 level, it was a triple stumper. Absinthial can mean related to this herb that is used to make absinthe. Daniela guessed... Mm-hmm. What is anise? But uh, that's wormwood. Yes, which I have wormwood. just recently learned is what absinthe is made out of. Mm-hmm. What is wormwood? I had a. I think I had assumed it was like a bark or something, because it has wood in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the name, but no, I'm I'm looking at pictures now, and it it's it's much more herbal looking than I had assumed. Absinthe does have an anise, like a like a licorice kind of flavor, flavor. to it. So I so I understand where Daniela was coming from with guessing anise. Mm-hmm. I don't like anything that tastes like anise. I think I, try. I think we've talked about this. Yeah. Yeah, I can tolerate it sometimes if I have to, but I'm never like, oh yay, it tastes like licorice. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the 21st century Broadway category, although I don't think I've seen any of these shows. Hmm. Have I seen any of these shows? No. 
but yeah, I was able to get all of those and, uh, and the contestants did pretty well with them as well. Uh, had Percy Jackson and the, the musical, the lightning thief in here. We had spam a lot. We had beautiful, the, um, the Carol King musical, a triple stumper about a raisin in the sun. Yeah. That's an important one to know. Yeah, that kind of surprised trivia. me that it was at the $2,000 level and then that no one got it. I mean, you have to know Lorraine Hansberry, Raisin in the Sun, in order to get it. Like, there was no clue in there about, like, what it was mm-hmm. about or, you know, what the title of the play actually was. But yeah, even so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that one f- surprised me a little bit, although I, you really do have to just have that specific piece of knowledge not a lot of context there we find daily double number two in the author's homes category uh it's at the twelve hundred dollar level and greg finds it he wagers three thousand of his ninety four hundred daniela is back at twenty six hundred and doug is at seventy seven hundred uh and he gets the clue in the 1870s she and her family lived in a little dugout house near walnut grove minnesota on the banks of Plum Creek. And he gets it right with who is Laura Ingalls Wilder. Mm-hmm. On the Banks of Plum Creek, I believe is one of the titles of her series, but obviously not as well known as Little House on the Prairie or, you know, even Little House in the Big Woods. Um, mm-hmm. But that was that was the big pointer there. Right. And uh, we find Daily Double number three in the Unusual Adjectives category at the $1,600 level. Doug finds this one and wagers 3000 of his 8900 A little bit bigger wager to take the lead might have been advisable here, but maybe not crazy about the category. Greg has 14400 at this point and Daniela has 3400 And he gets the clue. Something that is quadragesimal happens during this period of the Catholic calendar. And he thinks about it for a second and then comes up with what is Lent. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is correct. Uh, Quadragesimal really just means lasting or consisting of 40. Um, But because because of the 40 days of Lent, I guess that uh, association of quadragesimal meaning during Lent uh, came about. You don't necessarily need to like. I think the the connection to make here is to see quad and to think. I know that means four, and hopefully make the connection that quadragesimal must somehow mean forty. And you know, Lent has forty days. Mm-hmm. I thought it was thought it was uh, gettable. Yeah, as indeed Doug did get it. <laughs> yeah, it's and it seemed he kind of worked it out. It didn't. Yeah. it did not seem to be something that he just knew right off the top. Hmm. Yeah, I like the clues that can be worked out like that. And I like seeing the contestants work them out. Mm-hmm. That's very gratifying to me. Yeah, uh, we had a we had a pronunciation reversal in the geographic gateways category at the $2,000 level. Uh, the clue there was Rostov on Don, Russia is the gateway to this mountainous region between the Black and Caspian Seas. Greg rang in and said, what is the Caucasus, I think is what he said. Mm -hmm. And they initially credited credited him with a correct response, but subsequently reversed that decision 
because it was not a close enough pronounci- pronunciation of Caucasus um, to be kind of a viable pronunciation of the way the word is spelled. Right. Caucasus would put put an A after the second C, I guess. There is an A after the second C. I think it would put a U. It would put the oh, A-U. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, the, it would, it would put, put the, the A-U, A-U in the wrong place. Yes, um, that's, yeah. yeah. Bummer there. Um, yeah. That's always my feeling when somebody gets dinged on an almost but not quite pronunciation of a word they obviously haven't heard said aloud. Um, right. Although Jeopardy's rule is if you mispronounce the word in a way that is a viable pronunciation of the written word, mm-hmm. then they'll give you credit. Um, but yeah, in this case, in this case, he was not close enough. Uh, so at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Greg is in the lead at 17,600. Doug is in second at 15,100. And Daniela is at 4,200. And we get the final Jeopardy category, History of Medicine, which Alex remarks he doesn't think that they've ever had that category before. And they get the clue. 2020 marks the 55th birthday of the first piece of equipment dedicated to this process, now used in regular screenings. Daniela wagers everything but $2 and guesses what is a colonoscopy uh, as they were going, as they were leading up to revealing the uh, responses. Alex said, uh, we'll start with Daniela. What part of the body were you thinking of? And they revealed what is a colonoscopy. And he says, oh, I, I know what you were thinking now. That is incorrect. Doug uh, wagered 5000 which is fine. It'll keep him above Daniela's double up and mm-hmm. put him over Greg. And he guessed what is a CT scan, but that is also incorrect. And Greg wagered 2400 to jump up to an even 20000 That's uh, not a cover bet. Not a cover bet. Not a strategic bet, but it worked out because Doug got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And... He got it right with what is mammogram. He 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 missed an M, but not one of the important M's. Yeah, so. you could see him get nervous because he'd gotten dinged on Caucasus right um, <laughs> when Alex told him that it was spelled wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I, and then and then the relief when he realized that he had in fact won. Yeah. So that brings us to Thursday. We get the contestants uh, Kate Lazo, an assistant athletics director from Menlo Park, California. Nalan Kashyap, a clinical data analyst from Tempe, Arizona, and Greg Marrero, a school administrator from Huntington Beach, California, whose two-day cash winnings total $41,200. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, feminism, double O, double E, five-letter countries, chocolate, wild things, and you make my heart sing. Man, this is a great board. I love this board. (laughs) It is pretty fun. They left feminism until dead last, but it's okay. It wasn't a a, a panel of all men either. Nope. Nope. Not not it that that's, not. you know, just a automatic that, oh, oh, if there's a woman, she'd go for feminism first. But I know when there are panels of all men, they... They get some heat if they avoid the women categories. I know. Yes. Um, there's there's something strategically to be said for heading for a category where you might be likely to have an edge over the other competitors. Mm-hmm. Kate acquitted herself well throughout the game and in a variety of categories, um, but possibly could have pressed her advantage by heading to feminism sooner. 
I felt like at the $800 level, the clue was in a 2012 case, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled women who are breastfeeding their infants get time to do this during licensing exams. Kate responded correctly, um, phrasing it as pump breast milk. Um, That seemed like the kind of clue where people might have the right answer in mind and then get a little flummoxed over what to say exactly. Yeah. And uh, and freeze up. Yeah. I I said, what is pump? And then I wondered whether Jeopardy would be satisfied with pump. Um, It might not be enough. Pump Um, what? Uh, Are we we having this conversation? (laughs) Bicycle tires. Yeah. (laughs) Come on. Um, But good on Kate for, you know, going for it. Hmm. Sometimes those those kinds of clues give us like humorous moments where somebody's trying to kind of land on the correct combination of words, but obviously also is feeling self-conscious about it. I feel like there was right. one about gay marriage maybe recently where we got like sort of some some uh, hemming and hawing, but eventually a correct answer. All right. So Daily Double number one uh, shows up in a chocolate category. It's pick number 24. It's at the $800 level. Uh, Greg finds it and he wagers 1200 he is currently tied with Nolan at uh, 2200 uh, behind Kate's 4400 He gets the clue. In 1905, the year after it began making chocolate, this company merged with the Anglo-Swiss Condensed Milk Company. And he gets that right. That is Nestle. Mm-hmm. In the You Make My Heart Sing category uh, at, the, at the $200 level, we had the we had the clue. Billy Ray Cyrus found disfavor with country purists for this song, a number four crossover pop hit. I got really stuck for a second. Nolan got in with what is achy breaky heart, <laughs> which was one of the things I was thinking. The other one I was thinking was Old Town Road. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, not, not exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there was a, a version of Old Town Road with Billy, with- or was he? with Billy Ray Cyrus. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it was number one, not number four. And also the category you make my heart sing is uh, these are all going to be songs with heart Mm -hmm. in the title. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Kate is in a good lead at 6,000. Greg is at 3,200. Nolan's at 200. Nope. And Nolan's at 2,000. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. How artsy a total smoke show 20th Century America, Advice to the Novel Heroine, and you have to name the novel, Warm Words, and Asian Americans on TV and film. They struggled with the Advice to the Novel Heroine category, and so did I. These were pretty deep cuts, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. By deep cuts, I mean books I haven't read, but... um, (laughs) uh, uh, That counts. Yeah. No, I I think they're deeper cuts. I'll stand by it. At the... $1,600 level, Miss Kenton, even all the Nazis at Darlington Hall couldn't bring you and Stevens the butler together. Um, And that is The Remains of the Day. At the $2,000 level, we had another triple stumper. Lily, I think you should wait one more day for Lawrence Selden. At least tell him the debts are paid. And that's The House of Mirth. Mm. And both of those are novels that I've heard of and i think i could name the author of but you know these were what you get are little bits of plot points and a and a character name or two right and for for the deeper cuts the the novels that are not you know kind of your you know most common ones those are those are tough to pull 
Mm-hmm. Um, sure. You know, you might you might have memorized that Edith Wharton wrote The House of Mirth, but that doesn't do anything for you when you're trying to figure out who Lily and Lawrence Selden are. Right. Daily Double Two comes up in the 20th Century America category as just the second pick. It's at the $800 level. Nolan finds it and wagers 2000 of his 2400 Kate's at 6000 and Greg is at 3200 To my mind, maybe not a lot of point in holding the 400 back at this mm-hmm. point. Maybe just, you know, I think I would have made it a true Daily Double. You're only at the second clue, so you still got 28 on the board. In any case, he gets the clue. As the dot-com bubble swelled, this tech-heavy stock index rose from 1,000 to 5,000 between 1995 and 2000. And he correctly responds, what is the NASDAQ? Stock exchanges are something I need to learn anything at all about. Yeah, I have them a little bit by osmosis, but I haven't made much of a point of studying them. I got that one on luck. We get uh, Daily Double number three and very, actually the last clue of the round. It's pick number 28 and we don't see the last two two clues. Uh, Greg finds this one. It is at the $2,000 level in How Artsy. He is at 8,800. Nalan is at 8,000. Kate is at 12,800. And Greg wagers 4,000 to get into a tie with Kate if he gets it right. And he gets a clue. To honor this artist's 125th birthday, Cedar Rapids, Iowa commissioned statues like the one seen here. It, it looked like American Gothic. Uh, and he guesses who is Grandma Moses. But that is Grant Wood. Yep. I think he must have seen, like, the female figure of, uh, like, maybe not recognized it as an American Gothic reference or or knew, or maybe didn't know who painted American Gothic. Right. But my guess was that he saw kind of the the grandmotherly figure of this, uh, this uh, tribute statue and right. thought that might be uh, Grandma Moses. I feel like he, uh, that, that wager... And then the round ended. If he had gotten it right, he would have finished in a tie. And he is obviously a very knowledgeable person, but I'm not sure he would have known the strategy of how to handle a tie. Right. I think that would have played out in a tricky way. But we didn't have to worry about it. We did not. Because at the end of the Jeopardy round... Right after this, so Greg has dropped to 4,800, and Nolan is still at 8,000, Kate is still at 12,800, and we get the category World Flags, and the clue, both Wales and Bhutan have flags bearing one of these mythical creatures. And all of our contestants get it correct. Greg wagers everything but a dollar. I think he does have to wager something. Yeah, he has to, he has to make a pretty good sized wager still to get to get above Kate. So, you know, everything but a dollar isn't a bad call. And he responds, what is a dragon? That is correct. Nolan wagers absolutely everything. It's probably not the best strategic move, but since he's got it right, it works out fine. But all of that is a moot point because Kate has made a cover bet uh, and a bit with 4,000 and has the correct response. So she mm-hmm. is our winner going into Friday. And on Friday the 13th, 
We had the contestants Mary Dang, a gameplay engineer from Belmont, California. John Bussard, a marine aviator originally from Ringo's, New Jersey. And Kate Lazo, an assistant athletics director from Menlo Park, California, whose one-day cash winnings total $16,800. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, American History, Bread, which Alex seemed really excited about, Abandoned Places, Anagrams, Classic Sitcoms by Episode Title, and 37 is Heaven. They did not explain that the anagrams category would be you take a word from the clue and anagram it to get Mm -hmm. the answer. So it threw me off a little bit. (laughs) I struggled with those. Yeah. That is is challenging to identify which word in the clue you are supposed to anagram Mm -hmm. and figure it out before you run out of time. Right. John got three of them. And two were triple stumpers. Mm-hmm. I learned that apparently gold miners in the Klondike were called sourdoughs. Yeah. I already had an association between the Klondike and sourdough and still didn't guess that. I believe a restaurant I used to go to when I lived in the city made sourdough pancakes from a starter that traces back to a starter that was used in the Klondike. They were excellent. Yeah. But I I, I remember, like, I I thought to myself, sourdough? Nah, not sourdough. (laughs) Um, And then I started thinking about Klondike bars, which is not relevant. Yeah, hopefully no Uh, bread in there. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think there's an Ancestry.com for sourdough starter? Oh, I don't like you know. can trace the lineage of your sourdough starter. That would be cool. Would it? It'd be cool for some people. I would. I it probably wouldn't be an ancestry.com. It would have to be like um a, like a twenty three and me like a, a yeast estuary. Yeah, like but you'd you'd have to like send in like a swab of your sourdough starter. Mm-hmm. Um, that that right there, grossest thing I've heard all day. Yeah. Swap of your sourdough starter. Uh, I have an abandoned sourdough starter in the back of my fridge, and I don't know if it's salvageable. Hey, um, if any of the listeners know whether you can salvage a sourdough starter that you've ignored in the back of your fridge for, like, let's say three months, just like just tweet at me um, and let me know what I'm supposed to do, because I'm afraid to open it. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what will happen? <laughs> We find the first Daily Double in abandoned places at the $600 level. Uh, John finds this one as the 19th pick and wagers just 1,000 of his 7,200. He's in a really solid lead at this point. Kate has 800 and Mary has 400. And he gets the clue. The exclusion zone created after this 1986 event covers some 1,600 square miles and you should still keep out. And he correctly responds, what is Chernobyl? Mm Mm-hmm. John just crushed it. Yeah, John played quite a game. Yeah. I had sort of a feeling that like a lot of the categories kind of played to his strengths. Sure. Yeah, but he he just played, he played quite a game. Our listeners know who won. I'm curious to see how he does on on another round of boards and like whether he's just like a solid all around player or um, I felt like we were a little like history and geography heavy Mm -hmm. that might have worked for him. Anyway, uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, 
Um, John has 11,800, Kate has 3,200, and Mary has 1,000. And we get the double jeopardy categories, celebrity class of 1980, a novel category, inventors and inventions, British royal residences, crime and punishment, and from B to C. Each correct response will begin with the letter B and end with the letter C. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. John got 30 right in this game. Yeah. Uh, he played very well. Yeah. And he did find all three daily doubles. <laughs> yes. Uh, seems like Kate uh, is up on her um, British royal residences. Mm-hmm. She did very well in that category. Identifying Windsor Castle and Balmoral at the $1,600 and $2,000 levels. And uh, and she also got Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. We get daily double number two. Actually, we get both of them very late in the round. Daily double number two doesn't show up until pick number 26 in the inventors and inventions category at the $2,000 level. John finds this one, as I mentioned before. Uh, he is at 23000 Kate is at 12800 and Mary's at 6200 uh, He wagers 2000 try and get in a locked position. And he gets the clue. Inspired as a boy by H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, he launched the world's first liquid-fueled rocket in 1926. And he gets that right with, uh, who is Robert Goddard. He is a marine aviator, so... <laughs> that clue seems to play into his knowledge base. Yes, that was that's the kind of thing that I was alluding to when I said this was a really good board for him. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert Goddard was from my home city of Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. Um, Another yeah. hometown hero. How many more <laughs> Worcesterians? Uh, sure, let's go with that. Worcesterites? I, I don't know. W- Wusses? No. No. What do you call people from Worcester? I should know the answer to that. Yeah. No, New it seems Englanders. like it seems like yeah, New Englanders. It seems like people from Worcester don't really have a, a name for themselves as people from Worcester. Mm-hmm. From uh my own memory and Google also is not turning anything up for me, so it's not like I, I've I, I'm forgetting something, I think. Uh, Daily Double number three comes up in a novel category. Seems like none of them really cared for this one. They left it for last. John finds this one as well at the $1,600 level as the 29th pick. And he wagers 1600 of his 25800 Kate's at 12800 still at this point, and Mary's still at 6200 And he gets the clue. E.M. Forster saw his first major success in 1910 with this novel named for a country estate. And John can't think of anything. The correct response here is Howard's End. Never heard of it. I am. Um, I actually heard of it. I think it might have been like an episode of This American Life or something like that, where someone was talking about their process for generating mnemonic devices, and they used the novels of E.M. Forster as an example <laughs> of how how this guy comes up with his mnemonic devices. Um, and he, he described a process of like creating a mental picture. And so his his mnemonic device was that he would imagine a room with a view okay of howard of howard's end 
Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, in the in a more vulgar sense that is not intended by the actual title of the novel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, that stuck with me. It works. I just don't. I I don't generally go to all the trouble of coming up with mnemonic devices of that sort. Uh, sure. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so I I just had all of the novels of E.M. Forster at my fingertips because of having heard that particular radio story whenever it was. Um, <laughs> Wow. Uh, I don't know the first thing about Howard's End. Not a thing. Yeah. I did know the $2,000 level of that category, though. This Donna Tart bestseller begins, While I was still in Amsterdam, I dreamed about my mother for the first time in years. Um, I didn't especially remember the opening line, um, but that is The Goldfinch, which I read a couple of years ago. That's a... It's kind of a slog, but you know, worthwhile. It's just, it's just long. It's, it's, and it's not, it's not a quick read. It's a, you know, it, sure. it takes your attention. Um, yeah. But it was a good one. Okay. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, John is at twenty four thousand two hundred, but it's not a lock game because Katie is at twelve thousand eight hundred and Mary's at sixty two hundred, which means she's still sort of in contention, but not really because if John mm-hmm. wagers intelligently they get the final jeopardy category u.s monuments and the clue more than 100 years after it was first proposed this monument was dedicated by president chester arthur and they all got it right because i don't know i felt that was a pretty pretty gettable one uh it is the washington monument mary wagered six thousand so she goes up to twelve thousand two hundred kate wagered twelve thousand seven hundred seventy five so she was in the lead for a moment, but John wagered 2000 so he got himself up to 26200 And he is the winner going into next week. Mm-hmm. And if you want to dig a little bit into uh, what took so long with the Washington Monument, there's actually um, notable Jeopardy! champion Arthur Chu touches on it in um, a Salon.com article he wrote back in 2015. The article focuses more on trolls trying to take over the Hugo Awards, um, but he mm. draws a connection to um, some of the like the, the politics behind the delay in finishing the Washington Monument. It was, uh, was an interesting read. Mm. I remember running into it way back when I was just taking the Jeopardy test when it came up. So listeners, this is the time when um, we remind you that it is important to get involved in things that matter in the world. Um, uh, we, of course, have a Patreon and supporting the media that you enjoy is is great. Um, but more than important than that is uh, supporting some of the important work that's happening in our in our nation for um, for justice, uh, social justice, racial justice. You can check out communityjusticeexchange.org or blacklivesmatter.com as a couple of places to connect and get involved um and we hope you will yeah and remember that the pandemic is not over even if you are over it Mm -hmm. keep wearing your mask the more over it you are the less over it's gonna be so yep (laughs) stay on our game yeah stay inside listen to podcasts all right emily do you have deep dive guesses? Yes, I do. Are we talking about Grant Wood? We are not talking about Grant Wood. Thought about okay. it, but I was like, I talked about Dolly release recently. Don't want to do too many All artists. Right. 
Okay, how about David Lloyd George? Son of a... Yes! <laughs> Every time. I'll try to be really predictable next week. It's fine. It's fine. Yes, we're talking about David Lloyd George, but not just David Lloyd George. So the clue, this is from the Monday game. Double Jeopardy round, historic names. Prior to David Cameron, the last British prime minister named David was this man who held, who led his country through World War I. That is David Lloyd George. I remember that because I've, I have recently looked back at the, like, information of World War I. But that reminded me that there is a list of people that I wanted to go over again for my trivia knowledge. And I felt that I could do that in the, like, the midst of a deep dive. So we are going to be talking about British Prime Ministers. Awesome. Uh, so I will go through the list and I will give some information about, you know, not that any of them are unimportant, but some of the more notable names uh, throughout that list of people. And then we'll have ourselves a quiz. So here we go. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is the head of the government of the United Kingdom. Prime Minister directs both the executive and legislature and together with their cabinet uh, is accountable to the monarch, parliament, their party, and ultimately the electorate. Uh, the prime minister, the office of prime minister is not established by any statute or constitutional document, but uh, it developed out of long established conventions whereby the reigning monarch appoints as prime minister the person most likely to command the confidence of the House of Commons. Uh, it's usually the leader of a political party or coalition of parties. And it developed through a bunch of different acts of parliaments and, and like political developments and th things like that. So there there was not like a moment that said, we're now going to have prime ministers. It just, you know, kind of came to be. Mm -hmm. Prime minister is, like it says, and like I said, a, not, a, um, not a technically elected position in the United Kingdom. You vote for your member of parliament. And then the party determines their leader, and then that leader, if they are the leader of the majority party of the House of Commons, typically that person is put forward and understood to uh, be the prime minister, and given that the monarchy in the United Kingdom is not actually powerful in any way, shape, or form any anymore, they just kind of like, they, they go through the motion of, you know, appointing that person as prime minister. Mm-hmm. Which is why it might seem to change a bit more often than, like, the presidency does. Um, yeah. Because every time there's an election, the majority party could change, which then changes the leader in the position of prime minister. Mm -hmm. Prior to the Georgian era, before King George I, the Treasury of England was led by the Lord High Treasurer. By the late Tudor period, the Lord High Treasurer was regarded as one of the great officers of state and was often, but not always, the dominant figure in government. Uh, for instance, Edward Seymour, first Duke of Somerset, served as Lord Protector to his prepubescent nephew Edward VI, and William Cecil, first Baron of Burghley, uh, who was Lord <laughs> High Treasurer from 1572 to 1598, was uh, a, the dominant minister to Elizabeth I, uh, and his son, Robert Cecil, also took over that position. By the late Stuart period, this is, of course, hearkening back to my talk on the English monarchy, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the treasury by then was not uh, run by a single person, 
but uh, by a commission of lords of the treasury led by the first lord of the treasury. And then after the succession of King George I in 1714, that arrangement um, of a commission of lords uh, became permanent. Uh, For the next three years after that, the government was headed by Lord Townsend, who was appointed Secretary of State for the Northern Department, which is just another, like, part of the British government. And Lord Stanhope and Lord Lord Sunderland ran the government jointly. Uh, Stanhope was in charge of foreign affairs and Sunderland in charge of domestic. Stanhope died in 1721. Sunderland resigned two months after that. Uh, And then Townsend and Robert Walpole were invited to form the next government by King George I. That was kind of like the point at which the holder of the office of First Lord of the Treasury um, kind of also became the Prime Minister. It wasn't until the Edwardian era that the the term Prime Minister was actually constitutionally recognized, um, and the Prime Minister still to this day holds the office of First Lord of the Treasury by constitutional convention. There were a couple who did not because they specifically refused to take a title when they became prime minister. But for the most part, they have been first lord of the treasury. Mm -hmm. Especially in the 20th century, the office of prime minister has come from the House of Commons. Uh, Over time, the House of Lords has become less and less powerful. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. So the first prime minister that we refer to as that was Sir Robert Walpole. Uh, He was prime minister from 1721 to 1742, and he was, and still remains to this day, the longest sitting prime minister, and uh, his rule, I guess, was dubbed the Robinocracy. It was basically because he was a very effective moderate, that he was able to maintain that position as prime minister uh, for as long as he did. Uh, he stayed on the good side of King George I and George II, and he played a significant role in sustaining the Whig Party, safeguarding the Hanoverian succession, which was from George I to George II, and defending the principles of the Glorious Revolution, uh, which was the deposition of King James II, replacing him with uh, his daughter Mary II and William of Orange, uh, which was kind of like a, a movement among of the common folk sort of thing. Uh, So that's Robert Walpole. He was of the Whig Party. That was followed up by Spencer Compton, who was only Prime Minister for a little over a year, 1742 to 1743. Um, He was also a Whig. He was followed up by Henry Pelham, who was Prime Minister from 1743 to 1754, also a Whig. We really, it was mostly Whigs for the, the, the beginning of this. They were both appointed by George II, followed by Thomas Pelham Hollis, first Duke of Newcastle. So, uh, for instance, Sir Robert Walpole, he was a commoner. He was not a lord until he uh, was given the title first lord of the treasury. Spencer Compton was from the House of Lords. Henry Pelham was a commoner. Thomas Pelham Holes was a lord. And he went from 1754 to 1756. He was followed by William Cavendish, who just has a really British name. Mm-hmm. William Cavendish ruled for less than a year from uh, 1756 into 1757. He was also the Lord Treasurer of Ireland during that time. Again, still a Whig. And uh, he was the last one to be appointed by George II. 
Uh, after William Cavendish, Thomas Pelham Holes came back. So we see a lot of, like, returns, you know, which is another thing we don't really see a lot in American politics, or at least with the presidency, right? We only have mm-hmm. one time that a president left office and then came back to being president. That was Grover Cleveland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's because it's it's not a like a directly elected position, and it's not the same as the presidency. It's more like Speaker of the House, right? The... Mm-hmm majority party in the House of Representatives puts their leader up as the person in charge of the House of Representatives. So like Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, then she was not, now she is again, that kind of thing. So yeah, we get uh, we get Pelham Hollis back, uh, appointed by George III this time in uh, 1757, and he lasted until 1762. Then we have our first Tory. So this is the, uh, up to that point, the opposition party. Uh, the Whigs mm-hmm. and the Tories were the two major parties in Parliament. Uh, and this is John Stewart, the famed Jewish comedian John Stewart. <laughs> Just kidding. Third Earl of Butte. And he served for almost a year, from 1762 to 1763. Uh, he was followed up by George Grenville, who was a Whig, so we get the Whigs back in power. Uh, apparently the Tories did not do great. Uh, he was from 1763 to 1765. Followed by Charles Watson Wentworth from 1755 to 1766. And then followed by the first person I'm going to, or the next person I'm going to talk a little bit about, William Pitt the Elder, uh, who became the first Earl of Chatham. William Pitt the Elder was prime minister from 1766 to 1768, uh, which is not a terribly long time, but... He was an extremely influential person. Uh, So we refer to him as William Pitt the Elder because his son, William Pitt the Younger, was also prime minister later. But he is also sometimes referred to as just the Earl of Chatham or Chatham. Uh, At the time, he was also called the Great Commoner because he was one of the uh, prime ministers who refused to accept a title up until 1766. Um, he was a member of the British cabinet and its informal leader from 1756 to 1761. And he was a, a strong leader during the Seven Years' War. So the Seven Years' War was kind of a almost a world war. It was really just between Britain and France, but it was fought on a ton of different fronts because both the British and the French Empire uh, spanned the globe. So that included the French and Indian War in the American colonies as well as uh, combat that happened on the African continent and in India and in the Caribbean and in Germany. Uh, so there was the Seven Years' War was actually an important moment. That was from 1756 to 1763. And uh, William Pitt was both an extremely effective orator and also a, uh, let's say, severe uh, military leader. He, uh, he drew up a number of battle plans and it was with his leadership that Great Britain, for the most part, beat France in the Seven Years' War. Uh, it was during the Seven Years' War that uh, France lost its holdings in Canada to England, as well as mm. holdings in the Caribbean. Uh, and Spain, too, uh, kind of threw in with, with France for a bit. Uh, but they also you know, lost ground against Britain, in, in large part due to Pitt's leadership. Uh, a little thing about... Little little trivia thing about uh, William Pitt the Elder. He also joined a faction of discontented Whigs who called themselves the Patriot Boys. 
which rubs me the wrong way given current uh, events. Hasn't, hasn't aged well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he was a he was a, a, a firm critic of uh, corruption in the government and uh, that kind of thing. And and like I said, he was he was viewed by the commoners as like a kind of a hero among them. Yeah. That's William Pitt the Elder. Following his time, you know, he was actually only prime minister from 1766 to 1768, but he was a leader before and after that. Uh, it was followed up by Augustus Fitzroy, who, <laughs> like, that name's got, name. yeah, really, got to be made up, from 1768 to 1770. Followed, following him was Lord Frederick North, who was only the second uh, Tory that we have as prime minister, but he lasted from 1770 to 1782. So the North government oversaw Great Britain during the vast majority of the American Revolution, during which time William Pitt the Elder was actually pretty strongly on the side of the Americans. When actual war broke out, he was still like in favor of the empire. He was very much a like pro-Britain kind of person. But leading up to them, he leading up to that point, William Pitt the Elder had warned numerous times for Parliament to take it seriously and be like, we can't fight in in America and win. That's you know, that's not something that we can do. We can't fight the colonists there. But uh and so actually a lot of Sons of Liberty and, and Patriots used William Pitt as like a you know he's like, he's our hero kind of thing. Hmm. But the North government uh, oversaw that effort, and during that time, Pitt tried to kind of like, you know, support the Empire, but also be like, you should listen to them. <laughs> After North, in 1782, for less than 100 days, days came Charles Watson Wentworth, followed by William Petty, who lasted uh, for 266 days, so we're into 1783, followed by William Cavendish Bentick, who also lasted less than a year. Uh, so we're into December of 1783. Then finally, we get William Pitt the Younger, who lasted from 1783 to 1801. Uh, William Pitt the Younger was a Tory, and he was the youngest prime minister of Great Britain at the age of 24. Oh, and he, he was also technically the first prime minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland as of January 1801. That was, um, that, that was when the actual United Kingdom was consolidated. So he was prime minister during the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, and like I said, the Acts of Union of 1800. He was not particularly well-liked by either the people or his uh, compatriots, but George III trusted him quite a bit and actually asked him to be prime minister three times before he actually accepted. Pitt's leadership allowed the United Kingdom to basically survive the, the the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars as well, because they had, you know, they just lost their American colonies. They had not too long ago, you know, spent a lot of resources on the Seven Years' War and, and the American Revolution. Uh, and by all rights, you know, the Napoleonic Wars should have just crushed them, but really... Uh, the leadership of William Pitt allowed them to allow allowed Britain to uh, eventually become successful. Uh, he left the post after the Acts of Union. He tried to push further, like with the the monarchy, to secure Catholic emancipation. But but King George the Third said, "No, it is my job as King of England to protect and support the Church of England, and I will not do that." And so he. Uh, 
that was kind of like the big thing that pushed him out of the the um, prime ministership. After William Pitt the Younger, we had Henry Addington from 1801 to 1804. Then William Pitt the Younger came back from 1804 to 1806, uh, but he died in 1806. Uh, then we get William Grenville from 1806 to 1807. William Cavendish Bentick is back for from 1807 to 1809. Spencer Percival, 1809 to 1812. Robert Jenkinson. 1812 to 1827. He lasted quite a while. And uh, he oversaw the transition to George IV. Then George Canning for less than 100 days. Then Frederick John Robinson for another 100 days. Arthur Wellesley for almost three years. So we're up to 1830. And that is the first Duke of Wellington. Uh, Arthur Wellesley, as the Duke of Wellington, is known for defeating Napoleon right at the Battle of Waterloo. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then in, in 1828, he became prime minister. And he lasted until 1830. Following that, another famous name, Charles Gray, second Earl Gray, for whom Earl Gray tea is named. Oh. Yes. Uh, the story goes that he received a box of tea flavored with bergamot oil, and it just got named after him at that point. <laughs> yes. Charles Gray from 1830 to 1844. Then we have William Lamb, followed again by uh, Duke of Wellington. Came back in 1834 for 23 days. And this was under King William IV. Then Sir Robert Peel, a name we've heard before uh, in a number of places. He's regarded as the father of British policing, and he founded the Metropolitan Police Service. Hmm. William Lamb came back from 1835 to 1841. Then Sir Robert Peel came back from 1841 to 1846 as the Whigs and the newly formed Conservative Party kind of traded off back and forth. Uh, after Robert Peel was Lord John Russell from 46 to 52. Then Edward Smith Stanley for in, in 1852. He didn't last long. Uh, then George Hamilton Gordon uh, until 1855. Then we get John Henry Temple until 1858. Edward Smith Stanley comes back until 1859. Then Henry John Temple comes back until 1865. Then John Russell comes back until 1866. Then Edward Smith Stanley comes back until 1868. And then we get to another person I want to talk about, Benjamin Disraeli. Mm. So uh, Benjamin, yes, he was a member of the Conservative Party, served twice as prime minister, played a central role in the creation of the modern Conservative Party, and he had an influential voice in world affairs uh, and went up, again, well-known against uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, William Gladstone. He was born to a Jewish family, uh, but he became Anglican at age 12, Eventually, he got into the House of Commons in 1837. He became uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1860s. I'm always going to enjoy that job title. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty great. He was close friends with Queen Victoria, who in 1876 appointed him Earl of Beaconsfield, so turned him into a noble. The second term uh, of his was dominated by the Eastern Question, which was the slow decay of the Ottoman Empire and the desire of other European powers, such as Russia, to gain it at its expense. And so he arranged for the British purchase of a major instance in interest in the Suez Canal Company in Egypt, and he worked at the Congress of Berlin to obtain peace in the Balkans at terms favorable to Britain and unfavorable to Russia, which established him as one of the one of Europe's leading statesmen. He was also prime minister during the British war in Afghanistan and South Africa, and he lost in the 1880 general election. He, he wrote novels during his career, uh, and his last completed novel, Endymion, 
was published shortly before his death. Um, there's a lot I could go into. I could do a full dive on Benjamin Disraeli, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. The other one, of course, is Gladstone. Disraeli and Gladstone are like the two names to know of Victorian prime ministers, right? They went back and forth. Uh, Gladstone was a liberal politician. He served 12 years as prime minister, spread over four terms. Uh, he also served as a chancellor of the Exchequer four times. Uh, he was from Liverpool, born to Scottish parents, and entered the House of Commons in 1832. His popularity among the working class earned him the sobriquet, the People's William. <laughs> Which, <laughs> are there other Williams? <laughs> he passed a lot of reforms, including the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland and the introduction of secret voting. Which is bizarre that it took that long. So he lost in 1874, or the Liberal Party lost in 1874, and he resigned as a leader. In, 18, er, in 1876, he began a comeback based on opposition to Turkey, uh, Turkey's reaction to the Bulgarian April uprising, and he put on a good campaign, and he was able to win in 1880. He formed a second ministry. That government passed the Third Reform Act, or the Representation of People Act, in 1884, which uh, extended suffrage uh, to more people in the, Uni in the United Kingdom. Uh, but also during his tenure, they, they improved the legal rights of Irish tenant farmers and other less represented people. He proposed home rule for Ireland, but that was defeated in the House of Commons. Gladstone was affectionately known by his supporters as, like I said, the People's William or G.O.M., the Grand Old Man. Uh, his rivals called him God's Only Mistake. <laughs> So there we go. <laughs> so they they go back and forth, you know, uh, Disraeli and Gladstone uh, until 1885, at which point Robert Gascoigne Cecil, uh, leader of the Conservative Party after Disraeli, uh, became prime minister for 220 days. Then Gladstone comes back for 170 days. Then Gascoigne Cecil comes back for six years. So this is up to 1892. Then Gladstone comes back for another year and a half until 1894. And then we're done with that, or so we think. Archibald Primrose follows up Gladstone uh, until 1895, and then Gascoigne Cecil comes back until 1902. <laughs> it just keeps going back and forth. Then we get Arthur Balfour until 1905, Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. What a British name. That's, yeah. Uh, he's a, this is the Liberal Party coming back until uh, 1908, and this is under Edward VII. Followed by H. H. Asquith. <laughs> from You're just making these up now. <laughs> I, I wish I were. Um, from 18, 1908 to 1916. And then we get David Lloyd George from 1916 to 1922. Uh, David Lloyd George is the final liberal to hold the post of prime minister. His first language was Welsh. Uh, he strengthened the country's finances and forged agreements with trade unions to maintain production during the war. Uh, Lloyd George became, and it, it, his last name is Lloyd George. It's not hyphenated, um, but is apparently the term is barreled. Uh, it is two two names that make up his last name. He became minister of munitions in 1915, and in 1916 he was appointed secretary of state for war, uh, and then he became uh, prime minister after that. He supported some uh, not great movements during World... Really, World War I was not, was not really a showcase of military uh, genius. <laughs> there were a lot of like really bad decisions made, uh, and that's why a lot of people died. Uh, but he was a major player in the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, 
but the situation in Ireland worsened that year, which then led to the Irish War of Independence. And uh, Lloyd George negotiated independence for the Irish Free State in 1921. He initiated reforms to education and housing, and the economy became depressed in 1920 and unemployment rose. Uh, so the end of his tenure did not see him in a favorable light, but uh, that may or may not have been his fault, really. Then we get Andrew Bonar Law <laughs> from 22 to 23, Stanley Baldwin from 23 to 24, Ramsey MacDonald from 24 to November of 24, Stanley Baldwin back again from 1924 to 1929, Ramsey MacDonald from 1929 to 1935, then Stanley Baldwin again. <laughs> until 1937. Then we get the best prime minister ever, Neville Chamberlain. He was a conservative prime minister from 1937 to 1940, and he is best known for his foreign policy of appeasement. Uh, he signed the Munich Agreement on September 30th of 1938, uh, which it, 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 uh, it ceded to Germany the Sudeten German territory of Czechoslovakia. Yeah, yeah, he, he appeasement. Yeah. Chamberlain was like, oh, he'll tire himself out. Hitler doesn't want that much. He'll be fine. Uh, that was followed by Winston Churchill, 1940 to 1945. Uh, so the wartime cabinet of Winston Churchill. Not going to go huge into him because, again, this is a he could be a lot. Uh, he was ideologically an economic liberal, liberal and imperialist, uh, though he was a member of the Conservative Party for most of his time. He was of mixed English and American parentage, which I did not know hmm. before this. Oh, I didn't either. Uh, but he was a uh, part of the aristocracy. He joined the army in 1895, saw action in British India, in the Anglo-Sudan War, in the Second Boer War, uh, and be gained fame as a war correspondent during that time. He served as Minister of Munitions, Secretary of State for War, Secretary, Secretary of State for Air, Secretary of State for the Colonies, as well as the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. So he, he was a pretty prominent statesman, and then he became Prime Minister, and World War II is its own thing. So in 1945, Clement Attlee, the first of the Labour Party prime ministers, took over until 1951. Then Winston Churchill was back in from 51 to 55. His, this particular ministry is called Churchill III. So there was the Churchill War Ministry. Mm -hmm. Then once the war was over, the Churchill Caretaker Ministry. And now this is Churchill III. Uh, after that... Sir Anthony Eden in 1955, then Harold Macmillan in 1957, followed by Sir Alec Douglas Holm, 1963 to 1964, Harold Wilson from 64 to 70, Edward Heath from 70 to 74, Harold Wilson again from 74 to 76, James Callaghan uh, from 76 to 79, uh, and this is when the Conservative Party and the Labour Party were, you know, began really trading off, uh, and these are the still the two major parties in, in England. Uh, and then after James Callahan was Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, nay Roberts, was the first female prime minister. And she was prime minister from 17, or no, from 1973 to 1990, leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, she was the longest serving prime minister in the 20th century. And she was known as the Iron Lady. She implemented policies that became known as Thatcherism. She briefly re uh, worked as a research chemist before becoming a barrister, uh, and then she was elected Member of Parliament for Finchley in 1959. She was Secretary of State for Education and Science in the Heath uh, administration, and then she defeated Heath in the Conservative Party leadership election. She oversaw the 1982 Falklands War, 
and survived an assassination attempt by provisional IRA in 1984, achieved political victory against the National Union of Mine Workers in the 1984-85 miners' strike, which definitely looks good in history now. Uh, yeah. Continuing on after her, we have into the 90s, 1990, we have John Major from 1990 to 1997. Then names I actually started to remember, Tony Blair from 1997. Tony Blair! Yeah, from 1997 to 2007, part of the Labor Party. Followed by Gordon Brown uh, from 2007 to 2010, again, Labor. Uh, and then we get into 2010, and the Conservative Party has been in power since then. Uh, David Cameron, 2010 to 2016, who left because he fundamentally opposed Brexit. And when pre- Brexit passed, he Don't we all? felt that he could not lead the, the country through that. So he was replaced by Theresa May from 2016 to 2019. And in 2019, uh, she stepped down after Brexit did not move forward, and Boris Johnson took over, and that's where we are today. Yes. Yes, indeed we are. Yes. Uh, wow. I don't expect a lot of those names to stick. But if there's, if nothing else, maybe, you know, a question comes up and you're like, oh, that sounds like a bizarre, weird, that H.H. Asquith, that's a strange name. Come <laughs> on, I seem to recall something H. like that. Asquith. <laughs> yeah. I don't suppose having a very British name is a is a prerequisite or a job qualification, but wow, these are some very British names. It certainly seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, sorry, there was one more trivia thing. Only one prime minister has ever been assassinated, and that was Spencer Percival. He was shot dead in the lobby of the House of Commons in May 1812. Okay. I had, a, I had a note that I was supposed to go to when I got to Spencer Percival, and I just, like, powered through that. So, all right. Are you ready for a quiz? I am always ready for a quiz. All right. This quiz is about prime and ministers. Uh-oh. Okay. All right. So, question one. The character of fiction originally called Orion Pax is better known by what name? He bears the Matrix of Leadership, bestowed on him by the High Council of Cybertron. And he is known for believing that freedom is the right of all sentient beings. I don't really know. I can is... add another line to the to it if you want. Uh, yeah, add, add another line. But there may be more to him than meets the eye. I mean, I, I'm guessing mostly based on the theme and, and gut instinct, but is this Optimus Prime? It is Optimus Prime. Yes! Yes, <laughs> yes it is. <laughs> I did not get too deep into the lore of Transformers, so I just remembered that Optimus Prime was a thing, and I wanted to write a question about it. All right, nice job. You got 10 points. You have 20 points, because you guessed a freaking category. All right, that's right, the right clue. Look at that. Yay. 20 points already. All right, question all right. two. I think this is a very important trivia question for all of us, and it's real simple. Is one a prime number? No. Because a prime number it has to be divisible. Wait, is it? Oh no, has it has two factors, one and itself. I think that one is not because it only has one factor. I'm gonna say no. And that reasoning is correct. Yes. Yay. A prime number is divisible by one and itself, uh, but one and itself cannot also be one. Uh, is the explanation that I have been told. So yes. One is not technically a prime number. The prime numbers begin with two. Uh, All right. 30 points. Question three. The world's longest serving prime minister 
Prince Khalifa bin Salman al-Khalifa of this small country died this week, aged 84. He served as the Prime Minister since it became independent from the UK in August of 1971. I don't know. Um, it sounds Middle Eastern. I can't remember which Middle Eastern countries used to be British colonies. I'm going to guess, I'm, I'm just kind of guessing randomly a small-ish, I hope it's small, oh goodness, uh, country. Um, I'll guess Oman. Ooh, Oman is, is pretty small. Uh, and you're in, you're in almost, you're, you're in the right, like, area. It's on the Arabian Peninsula, but it is Bahrain. Mm, oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, this week. Saw that yeah. on the BBC News app. I'm filing that one away. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he apparently was a rather strict dude. Journalists and free press are not, not fans of him. Also pro-democracy people. Yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on question four. Geography question. For one point each. Oh, no. Ten. <laughs> okay. Ten if you get them all right. Because there are nine. But if you get all nine, I'll give you ten points. Name every country that the Prime Meridian passes through. But what if I don't want to? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can't even envision where it, it... It must pass through the UK, right? I think. No. I will, yes? I will tell you yeah. as you get them. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> it passes through the UK. All right. There are nine altogether? Yes. All right. Let's try... Let's try Ireland. It is not Ireland. Ah, okay. All right. So the 10 is out. I can't get the map visually in my head to kind of know where it lines up. France? France is one. Yay. Let's try further north. Oh my gosh. Uh, Sorry, I was incorrect. It no. is only eight. Okay. It is only eight, but I'll still give you 10 if you got all eight. Okay. Let's, let's try Norway. Norway is incorrect. All right, let's try Sweden. Sweden is incorrect. Ah, uh, I think Spain isn't going to work, but let's try Spain. Spain is correct. Yay, okay. Um, Portugal? Nope. Okay. Denmark? Nope. Okay. I really can't, like, I can't, I cannot remember what, like, lines up with what, like, vertically. It's so bad. I'm trying to remember how... Africa lines up vis-a-vis Europe and whether that would make any sense at all. All right. I tried Norway, Norway and Sweden, so I guess I'm going to kick myself if I decided not to guess Finland and that was the one. So it let's is, guess Finland. It is not Finland. Okay. All right. So I was right that it's too far. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. Um, and last guess. I'm trying to decide which one to guess. We'll try... Algeria. Algeria is correct. Yay! Okay. You got four. I got four. Yeah. That's okay. terrible. The That's so embarrassing. The reason I was thinking nine is because Antarctica is like one of them, but that's not really a country. So there are eight like nation states that it goes through. UK, France, Spain, and then, mm -hmm. then those are the only European ones. Algeria, Mali, Burkina Faso, Ghana, and Togo. Got it. All right, well, that's four points. All that's right. not bad. Okay. I, I feel a little bit less embarrassed now. But yeah, oh, yeah, no, all of Scandinavia is, is too far. Way too far east. E well, not way, way too far, far east. I shouldn't say yeah. way. It's it's to the east. 
Yeah. 34 points. On to question five. According to major global conglomerate Amazon Prime, or at least to their uh, customer service Twitter account, which country is not part of the United Kingdom? They recently got in a Twitter spat about it and doubled down on their insensitivity by apologizing for all the troubles. Oh, no. Northern Ireland? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You might, you, I guess you probably haven't seen that. Uh, I haven't. Yeah, somebody just like, uh, you know, some Amazon Prime customer like tweeted at him and was like, hey, why isn't, uh, why isn't this rugby game being streamed, you know, here on Amazon Prime at my friends, you know, in, in like England or whatever are able to do it. It's you, you said it, you know, your, your service says you'd be streaming this rugby game. And the response was, yes, we have licensing to stream it in the United Kingdom. And his response was, Northern Ireland is in the United Kingdom. Uh, and that led to a kind of a big backlash. And then they like they responded to that saying, uh, we apologize for all the troubles. We will the have troubles. the recording, oh. like we'll have we'll have the taped match on Amazon Prime available for you soon. It's like, Yikes. oh, oh man! <laughs> <laughs> all right, you're at forty four points, and the uh, final question is uh, ministers and literature. Ministers and literature. Let's play for all the points. Okay. Okay, probably a good one. We'll, we'll see. Your question is, the first person to hold this position was Ulick Gomp from 1707 to 1718. He had the onerous job of policing a fractious and frightened community adjusting to the imposition of the International Statute of Secrecy. He was succeeded by Damocles Rowell. Others in the line include, include Eldritch Diggory, Unctious Osbert, Rodolphus Lestrange, and Pius Thickness. Other more widely known names held the job in the 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s, and most recently, a famous book lover took over the post. Um, but after Cornelius Fudge, right? Because we're talking about the Minister of Magic? We are talking about the Minister of Magic, yes. That is correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah, apparently, according to lore, Hermione Granger is right now the Minister of Magic, as of 2019. All right. And and I congratulate her. Uh, yes. Breaking that glass ceiling. Yeah. Way to go. 88 points. This was so fun. Great quiz. Thank you. Great deep dive. Always embarrassed by my by my geographic knowledge, but, you know, it's okay. Hey, you got 88 um, points. I think you're doing I'm working okay. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for potting with me, Kyle. Of course. Yeah. And uh, thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Um, So lovely to share Jeopardy with you in these difficult times. Um, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, It would help if you could leave us a review and a rating also. We have a Patreon. You can check it out, patreon.com slash potentpotables. But you can also help us out by telling your friends. You and they can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1, our Email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week uh, with another week of Jeopardy, and until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.